Good morning. So what do you do when there's hundreds of thousands of people protesting around the world in the streets? What do you do when that happens? What do the people of God do? Yeah, they pray, absolutely. They don't take the situation lightly, but supremely. They get together and they seek the Lord together regardless of their political persuasion and they receive from the Lord and then they go out and they give what they've received. That's what they do. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. If you could rise for the reading of God's word. We are in John chapter 2. Going through the book of John, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We are in the final few verses of chapter 2. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We love passing out Bibles at Calvary Chapel. If you don't, we have one up here, right up, right up here in the middle. All right. Okay, verse 23 of chapter 2. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And had no need that anyone should testify of man. For he knew what was in man. Chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 9 says, Nicodemus answered and said, how can these things be? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We need it, Lord. We need your word. We need you. We need the Holy Spirit. We need you, Holy Spirit, to open our eyes, our ears, our mind, so that we're not only understanding and believing, we're embracing. Please do that in us this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, you may be seated. So chapter 2 of the book of John begins with two incidents which are foreshadowings, meaning signposts, signs. They point at the direction that Jesus' ministry would take. The first incident occurs at a wedding, a wedding in which the wine had run out. John, the writer of this gospel, places this incident quite deliberately at the outset of the book because as we discussed the last couple of weeks, The wine running out represented the state of Israel's relationship with God at the time that Jesus came on the scene. Wine, often a symbol of joy and life in the Bible. Israel's relationship with God had run out of joy and life when Jesus begins his public ministry. Jesus turns water into wine, a foreshadowing, a signpost of what was to come in Jesus' ministry. He would be pouring back life and joy into God's people. And he does that, if you're willing, with you. The second incident, a foreshadowing, a signpost as well of a very different kind. Jesus comes to Jerusalem during the Passover feast. He comes to the temple, there are merchants selling oxen, sheep, doves to the people so the people could offer to God the required sacrifice, the sacrifice they were required to make under Jewish law to God. The problem was the merchants were ripping the people off. They were forcing them to pay up to twice as much the cost that they should have paid, outrageously high prices. The temple priests knew all about it. They let it go on. Why? Because they had a cut in the profits. They were becoming wealthy as a result. So again, John, the writer of the gospel, places this incident quite deliberately at the outset of the book because it demonstrated what had become with the religious life, the church life, if you will, of Israel when Jesus came uh, on the scene. It was no longer about serving the people. It was about using the people. This happens to churches. It was about serving their pocketbooks. It wasn't about serving God. Jesus comes on the scene, verse 15, it says he made a whip. 
He overturns all the tables and drove the merchants out of the temple. This too, a signpost of his ministry to come. He will be confronting the religious corruption of the day, but more importantly, in our life and in your life, you now, if you've asked Jesus into your heart as Lord and King, being the temple of God, a shocking outrageous truth but truth nonetheless that's what the bible says you are he'll overturn tables in your life and teach you about the beauty of god's holiness so jesus makes the whip dries out the money changers sheep and oxen from the temple um, and he's, he's starting his public ministry with a bang, right? Uh, little or nothing had been known about him in Jerusalem prior to this time. But now everyone is paying attention. But in verse 23, we read, not only was everyone paying attention, this is verse 23 of chapter 2, not only was everyone paying attention to Jesus because of these coming in with a whip and driving everybody out, but he was performing miracles. Verse 23, let's read it together again, says John 2, 23. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Maybe this is, maybe this is why no one stopped him when he started overturning the money tables. I'm not going to stop that guy. I just saw him turn. Rather, I just saw him give sight to the blind. I'm not about to do that. It is interesting here. Jesus doesn't, I mean, rather, John, the writer, doesn't call them signs. Rather, he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. He calls them signs. And that, the reason for that is because the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament in chapter 29 and chapter 61 of Isaiah, lists the signs that Jesus would perform by which the Messiah could be recognized. So you see these signs, and you will recognize that the Messiah is on the scene. He's in your midst. Isaiah says, the blind will see, the lame will walk, lepers will be cleansed, the dead will be raised up. So no doubt, it's these kind of signs that they're seeing here at the Passover feast. Interesting, verse 23 said, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But then there's verse 24. Verse 24 and 25, these verses trouble the soul of men and women who are not students of the Bible. Now, we're here because we want to become students of the Bible so that these things don't trouble us. But these two verses have troubled the souls of many. It says, verse 24, but Jesus did not commit himself to them. So they believed in him, but it says he did not commit himself to them. To them because, why? Because he knew all men. He knew it was in their heart. 
and had no need, verse 25, that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Again, verse 24, it says, but Jesus not commit himself to them. I like the NIV, the 1984 version, which I grew up on. It says this, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. It uses the word entrust. So he doesn't commit, he doesn't trust, entrust himself to them. Now many times when someone who is new to the Bible reads this verse, they're startled, fearful. I was when I first read this. John being the first book that I that I really I, I studied, I, I read through carefully, first book. What's this all about? Doesn't the Bible teach that after I believe in Jesus, when I receive him into my life, that he commits himself to me, that he even joins himself to me, that he promised me that he'll never leave me or forsake me? Doesn't it say that? Yes, it does. It's one of the strangest truths in the Bible, that the God of the universe in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. That God entrusts all of himself to you. And you believe on his name and you receive him as Lord and King in your life. He does that. He commits himself to you. Unconditionally commits himself to you. It's the foundation. It's foundational to the Christian faith. That's what it's all about. That's what this Bible all about. God committing himself to you. Entrusting himself to you. So then why does it say this? Because <laughs> they believed in his name, verse 23, but Jesus did not commit himself to them. Well, we read John few weeks ago, we were in John chapter 1, verse 12. What does it say? It says this, but as many who received him. Dan, can we get that up? John chapter 1, verse 12. It says, to as many who received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. And it says in verse 23 of John 22, these people who saw the signs, they believed in his name. So what's going on? The problem is, as we see here in verse 12, they believed him when he, saw, when they, when he did signs at the Passover feast, but they didn't receive him. They didn't receive him. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, I knock at the door of your heart. Anyone who opens the door, I will come in and I will fellowship. I will dine with him. God indeed entrusts himself to you when you open up the door of your life 
and invite him in as king. Zechariah 13.9 says this. It says this. It says, They will call on my name, and I will answer them. This is God speaking. I will say, This is my people, and each one will say, The Lord is my God. Not only does Jesus commit himself to us, he entrusts himself to us. So much so that he gives us his name. Isaiah 43 verse 7 says this, Everyone who is called by my name, I have created for my glory. This is one of the, again, the most astonishing things of the Bible. That God would trust us so much, he would give us his name. That he, he's willing to risk his own reputation by giving us his name. And do, don't we muck it up, his reputation. Don't we throw mud on his reputation by our lies. But he does it anyway. He entrusts himself to us. The Bible says that God is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. It also says He's holy, that there's no deceit, no impurity, not so much as a blemish, a trace of sin in His, uh, in his life, yet He entrusts us with His name. But not if we don't receive Him. Not if we don't receive him. See, what happened at the Passover feast when Jesus was there, the people believed in Jesus, but they didn't receive him. So Jesus didn't commit himself to them. Now the Bible repeats this warning from Genesis to Revelation. Over and over and over again. Don't lull yourself into a false sense of security just because you believe facts about God. Don't do that. Just believing facts about God doesn't mean you are in right standing with God. The people at the Passover feast saw Jesus perform miracles, and they couldn't deny what they saw. He did the miracles right in front of their eyes. Therefore, they believed him that he was from God, but they didn't receive him. We'll see this time and time again. Throughout this book, the book of John, Jesus clearly demonstrating he has power over nature, over natural processes. He gives sight to the blind. He turns five loaves and two fishes into a meal for 5,000. He walks on water. And there will be many who witness, many who witness these things. They don't question who Jesus is, but they don't receive him. As king in their life, the church today in the United States has many people. I believe there are some of you here this morning that are like this. You don't deny who Jesus is. You've never denied who Jesus is, but you have never received him as the king of your life. That describes me when I was in my early 20s. I believed Jesus with all my heart. I had never entered into his kingdom. Never received him. Now in John chapter 3 verse 1, we see a man who fits this very category. Now, keep in mind, when John wrote this book, there were no chapter breaks. Meaning, John never intended for there to be any 
chapter break between verse 25 of chapter 2 and verse 1 of chapter 3. The chapter numbers and the verse numbers actually showed up a thousand years after this book was written. And, And I'm glad that someone did that because it helps me a lot. It helps us study the Bible. It's a good thing. I'm thankful. But oh, how I wish that they had not put a chapter break right after verse 25 of chapter 2. It's it's a poor placement. That's okay. I'm happy enough that all the the chapter breaks and the the numbers and everything are there. You know, whoever you are, you're forgiven. Uh, I know you don't live anymore. But uh, anyway, uh, what, what, what... Chapter 3, verse 1, it says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So the first three verses of of chapter 3, never meant to be read apart from the last three verses of chapter 2. So the last three verses of of chapter 2 says that many believed in the name of Jesus. When they saw the signs he did, Jesus did not commit himself to them. He had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in a man. Verse 1 of chapter 3, there was a man. In other words, this is the man he's talking about. This is the kind of man, rather, he's talking about at the end of chapter 2. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God. For no one can do these things, these signs that you do, unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is one of the people described at the end of John chapter 2. He saw the signs. He believed that Jesus was from God. Why did he come to Jesus? Why did Nicodemus come to Jesus because he hungered because he thirsted because he longed for the kingdom of God it says that Nicodemus was a Pharisee a ruler of the Jews it means that um, it, that means that he was steeped full of knowledge of the, the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament. He knew what the prophet said about the kingdom of God. The description of the kingdom of God by the Old Testament prophets, stunningly beautiful. Nicodemus knew what the prophet Isaiah had said about the kingdom of God. Isaiah 65. Verse 14 says, it shall come to pass when the kingdom of God comes, the prophet Isaiah said, that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Man, I like that. I mean, tracking with God like that or God tracking with us, it's a description of the kingdom of God. 
It continues, verse 25, Isaiah 65. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. Whoever in all these protests around the world, who the wolves are, who the lambs are, I do not know. I do know this. When the kingdom of God comes, they will be feeding together. That's what the Bible says. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. I want that. So did Nicodemus. Can you imagine being in a world, a kingdom, where they shall, no one shall hurt nor destroy? That's the kingdom of God. He was longing for it. He thirsted for this. He had dedicated his whole life to seeking after this kingdom and ensuring that he and his family had made it in. Now, he was a Pharisee, and in the Bible, in the New Testament, you will also often see two words next to each other, Pharisees and scribes. Pharisees and scribes. Oh, someone said it, didn't they? Oh, she, okay. The woman back there was turning red, said it. (laughs) Pharisees and scribes. Pharisees and scribes, they often came to confront Jesus. Now, don't think of Pharisees as these horrible people. Pharisees were serious about God. They weren't apathetic. They weren't lukewarm. They were seeking the kingdom of God. But the scribes and the Pharisees, were you usually see it like that, scribes and Pharisees. You don't usually see it as Pharisees and scribes. Scribes and Pharisees. Two different rules. Scribes, what they did is they, they more or less, they, they made laws, oral laws, oral traditions. And what they did, they took the Ten Commandments, they took the law of Moses, and they spent time applying those laws to different circumstances of life. Different circumstances of life. For example, the Sabbath. Okay, it says that we need to obey the Sabbath. How do we do that? What if our ox falls into a ditch? What do we do? So they spent their time uh, doing that. Uh, and, and actually, 24 chapters of the Mishnah, which, is, which, which was these interpretations or these laws reduced into writing at the time, 24 chapters alone on how to obey the Sabbath. Interpretation after interpretation after interpretation of how to tie knots. That's what these people did. Scribes. Interpretation after interpretation after interpretation of how to tithe, the law of tithing 10% of the first fruits of your increase. And so later on, in, 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 or in other places, not in John, but in the Gospels, it talks about they actually had gotten to the point where they took their, their, their herbs, mint, dill, and cumin, and they put them on a table, and they tithed this 10%, and they actually separated 10% of that, and, and somehow they offered it up to God. I mean, these, that's what the scribes did. Now, the Pharisees followed it. The, the Pharisees didn't write these interpretations. They followed them. 
Nicodemus thirsted for the kingdom of God and he is seeking after the kingdom of God uh, when he comes to Jesus and he has a devastating encounter with the Son of God. A devastating one for him. The implications of what Jesus said to him no doubt leaving him breathless. Like, what, what do I do with this information that this man is giving me? He comes to Jesus again, and he says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God. It says, by the way, he comes at night. This is part of the reason we know that he had not received Jesus yet. He's coming by night just want to be caught, just want to be seen with Jesus. Comes by night and he says, Teach, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Has nothing at all to do with his question, with Nicodemus' question. Jesus just goes right to the point. Unless you are born again, you will never see that kingdom. Now, he goes on in verse 5. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Not only, Nicodemus, can you not understand the things of the kingdom, you will not enter it unless you're born again. You will not enter the kingdom of God. All his efforts, the knots, the Sabbath laws, the tithing, the good deeds, they're of no value whatsoever at all. The attendance at church, the, the giving money, the good deeds, the rising up with the priest or the pastor and reciting prayers, the lighting of candles, the, the, the good deeds, the missions trips. When I was a kid, I took, actually took missions trips with, with my church, the church I went to, which, by the way, did not teach the Bible. But they had, when we went on missions trips, and you want to see the kingdom of God, you better go on a missions trip. And so we did. And, and good was done, by the way. And, 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 or whatever it is, it's no value when it comes to seeing, understanding the kingdom of God or entering the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is very simple. It's the rule of God. It's when you enter into a relationship with God where he's the king now. The kingdom of God. You're either outside the kingdom or you are in it, the Bible says. In Colossians chapter uh, 1, it says that God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his, of his dear son. This, this very good man in many ways, Nicodemus, was not in the kingdom of God. The Bible says he was in the kingdom of darkness. A devastating encounter for him because 
what Jesus is telling him is this. He's saying, as it relates to God, Nicodemus, you're not even close to the kingdom of God. In fact, you're dead. And you need to be born again. Nicodemus says, verse 4, he says to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, you know, some people read that and they laugh. I mean, how can this guy say that? Oh, I hear this all the time, this kind of thing. I hear this all the time. How can I go into heaven? Well, people get the instruction, you, you know, about a standard of behavior that they've already failed so miserably in their life. So, so they're thinking to themselves, I have to go back and somehow just got to go back and be a child and live my life over again. I've messed up so bad. I need to go back and be a kid. How am I supposed to do that? Am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb? And Jesus says to him, in verse 5, he responds. He says, well, can, I, can, I, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, people disagree on, on what this means. Some people think it means baptism. I feel very, very strongly that it doesn't mean baptism. He's just responding to what Nicodemus just said. Does a man have to go back into his mother's womb and be born again? What happens? I've, I've, I've been present for five children coming out of my mighty wife's womb. <laughs> What's the first thing that happens? when the birth is about to take place. The water breaks. He's just saying, yeah, it's, to get into the kingdom of God, yeah, you have to be born physically of water, but you also need to be born of the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. Actually, in many translations, verse 3, uh, some of your translations, you may be reading this translation, and it's a, if, it, if it does, it's a good translation. Jesus says in verse 3, unless you're born from above. You cannot see the kingdom of God. Same thing, above again. It, 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 the Greek word is a very, very hard one to, to choose between the two. Actually, both are the same. Both are the same. So he says, you know, do I have to go back and enter the womb uh, uh, a second time? Jesus says, no, I tell you. Unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And here's where I, why I feel the, the interpretation that, that water means physical birth. He repeats the exact same thing in verse 6. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He's just telling him, you need to be born again. Jesus had no problem going around and referring to people who did not receive him as king. He had no problem calling them dead. In and, and, and Luke chapter 9, verses 59 and 60, 
We see this verse, Luke chapter 9, verses 59 and 60. Jesus is speaking to a man, just follow me. The man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury the dead. There's no problem with the idea that there's walking dead men and women all over the world. Let the dead bury the dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Luke 9, 59 and 60. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we spent a long time in Ephesians in our church. Uh, it says this, and you, speaking to Christians, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to Christians. He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You're dead when you receive Jesus into your life. You become alive. And if you've never heard this expression, it bears repeating. If you've heard it, it bears hearing again. No matter how many times that you've heard it, Jesus did not come to make good people better. He came to make dead men and women alive. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come to make bad people a little less bad. He came to make Dead men and women, dead people alive. That's what he came for. Really important. This is the first teaching of Jesus in the book of John. It may be the first teaching of Jesus that he gave, period. We don't know because this is not in the book of Matthew. But can imagine this. The very first teaching that Jesus gives has nothing to do with the way you need to live your life as a Christian. And that's because no one can live a, good, a life good enough to make it into the kingdom of God. So he doesn't lead with that. He leads with, you're dead. You need to be made alive from above. That's what he says. The new birth. The new birth, what is it? It's the impartation of a new nature. Impartation means just, it's God giving man a new nature. The Bible says when we ask Jesus into our life, you say, yes, you're the king. You're the Lord, you're the savior. He comes in, he invades by the Holy Spirit, born from above, by the Holy Spirit. He comes in and he, and, and he occupies, which enables you and me to live out this life that we're told about in the Bible, that God has so graciously given us for our protection and for our blessing. So we can actually, so our eyes will open up and we'll be able to see, wow, holiness is beautiful. I can't believe it. My whole life I had looked at it like this horrible, dreadful, boring thing. No, it's beautiful, a life that is holy. Biggest problem in the church. People trying to live in their own strength, by their old nature, by their wit, by their um, charm, 
by their natural perseverance, all of which are, uh, can be gifts of God, but they try to live the life of God in their old nature, their physical nature. But Jesus is saying, uh, you won't, listen, you're not going to be able to even understand the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You're born by the Spirit. How does it happen? John 1, 12, to ever who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. I'm going to close here with verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Listen up. Most of the time when you're reading the Bible and you see that word believe, the word receive is written into it. It's written into it. It's not written into it at the end of John chapter 2 where it says many believed in Jesus uh, in his name when they saw the miracles. But in, most of the time in the Bible that word receives is, is written right into the, uh, that word believe. For so God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Um, go back briefly to verse 14. It says, Jesus, Jesus speaking, it says, and he, Moses, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man will be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Moses in the Old Testament, everyone was dying off because of a plague, because they were rebelling um, against the Lord. God says to Moses, put a bronze serpent, put it on a stick, raise it up, and everyone who looks at it will be healed. Now some people, how did people respond to that? Some would have said, well that's goofy and weird, I'm not going to do that. What happened to them? They died. The Bible says that Jesus was lifted up on a cross. And every, anyone who believes in that cross and what happened there, the king of the world died for them. Anyone who looks at that, it says they'll be saved. They will enter the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit will come into their life and all of a sudden the eyes open, the ears open, and their strength to live out this life. Now, between now and the time that Jesus returns or we die, there's going to be struggles. <laughs> We're going to have struggles. But the Lord is always there to give us a fresh filling. He's there. Not only every morning, and I hope everyone in here. Just open up your Bibles and you're going to the Lord in prayer every morning. It's not only every morning. It's every minute of every hour of every day. He's there. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to have communion now. And the Bible says that before communion, let a man, let a woman examine themselves. What is communion? I read a remarkable verse this morning. I'm still trying to figure out what it means. 
says this, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, this is speaking of the cup that we have at communion, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not communion of the blood of Jesus? That word communion means fellowship. Then it goes on, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Communion, where we take of the cup and the bread, it's a a heavy thing. Jesus poured out his blood on on the cross so that you would be made free and in your freedom, you would not abuse the freedom and go off and just live however you want to live contrary to his word and God's blessing for your life. And the Bible says before communion... I mean, come on, communion, it says right here, it's communion, it's fellowship with the blood of Christ. What that means exactly, I don't know. But what it does mean, part of what it means is, man, I shouldn't be taking communion. If I'm holding on to something in my life, which that blood, some sin rather, some sin in my life, some anxiety, some stress, which, which that blood paid for, for the ability for me to have victory over it. Maybe victory for just one day. I have to get up, fail again tomorrow and ask for victory again. But that blood paid for that. If you're holding on to something like that, we're going to have people, uh, prayer uh, partners up here. If you've been asked to pray, if you'll please come up at this time. Just come up and you don't even have to be specific. You can if you want. Just say, pray for me. (laughs) 